0: Historian, entrepreneur, and author, Ty Tenenbaum, is your guide for a behind-the-scenes tour of Israeli society and objective analysis of the key issues of the day for anyone who wants a deep and authentic look inside Israel. I'll tell you a little bit about myself. Um, I'm Israeli. I was born in Tel Aviv at the very end of 1964. Um, At the age of 11, we moved to the United States, living just outside of Washington, D.C., Spent uh, almost eight years, and then at the age of 18, I decided to come back to Israel to do my mandatory military service and then basically to live in Israel. Um, I was in the army, um, served uh, as a tank commander mostly from 1982 to 1985, and that was my regular service. I participated in the first Lebanon war. As a matter of fact, I was in Lebanon for a while. After that, I went to university, studied university, became a tour guide, set up my own business, and also set up this podcast. Um, In my reserve duty, and I'll tell you more about reserve duty later on, I spent a lot of time in Gaza. As a matter of fact, I was inside Gaza for a while. And I had been, as I said before, in Lebanon and Gaza. I served a lot in the West Bank, on the Egyptian border, on the Syrian border, on the Golan Heights, all as reserves. And I must tell you, I have never, in all my experience, seen anything like what happened on the 7th of October, 2023, on Shabbat, on a Saturday. Um, you've seen the photographs, I assume, I'm sure. You've seen the hor- the horrendous photographs. And I want to tell you a little bit more about what is going on. Again, before I do, I just want you to, t- want you to know, I have three daughters, one of which... Um, serves in uh, an intelligence unit, mainly with cyber warfare. My middle daughter, she's 22. She's passed her regular service, but decided to sign on for a while. And she's uh, on Saturday morning, she was at home for a break, for a weekend off. Saturday morning, when everything began, again, October 7th, um, she was called right back into the Army. Um, and of course, she's been there uh, since. Now, as the horrific visuals uh, were per- were published in the media, mostly on social media because the photographs were so, so difficult. Um, As these most horrific photographs were published, um, you saw entire families that were slaughtered in their homes. There were um, families of which you saw mothers laying on top of their children in order to protect them, which didn't help. Um, You saw large pools of blood in everywhere. There was atrocities of burning communities and burning houses. I'll tell you more about that a little bit later. And again, I I think most of you have probably seen it already. What's interesting and what you may not have seen is the Palestinian celebration. It was in Gaza. It was also in many other Arab countries elsewhere in the Middle East. They sang and they danced with happiness. Um, They could not contain their joy and the question what we, that we must ask ourselves, what makes a human being, any human being for that matter, decapitate another being's head? Slice the head off of a child, a baby? Hold up that baby's head while grinning? What, how does that come about? Um, again, before we try to answer that question, I want to tell you about the tragedy of the al family. The tragedy of the al family which lived in a kibbutz called Kfar Aza, which is very close to the Gaza border. The patriarch of the family is a man named Giora Almog, who's actually a kindergarten teacher in his mid-70s. His daughter, Chen Almog, married to Nadav, um, both of which were 49 years old. They, They met each other in seventh grade, and they've been together since. This family, two adults, of course, the mother and father, and four children one of which is 20 years old another 17 and a half and then two boys of 8 and 11 years old when the terrorists broke into their home nadav fought them off courageously trying as much as he can and with his last strength to save his kids and his wife um he was killed his oldest daughter 20 years old whose name is yam was killed. As a matter of fact, her body was identified because later, a few days later, a couple of days later, sorry, one of the kibbutz members who stood outside of the kibbutz as the army was trying to make sure that there were no more terrorists left over within the community. He turned to one of the soldiers and said, please go into that specific house and see if you find a woman's body, a girl's body with a butterfly tattoo on on her arm. And he, the soldier came out and said, yes, indeed, there's a butterfly tattoo on her arm. That, again, was Yamal Mog, 20 years old. Um, The wife, Chen, the mother, Chen, and her 17-year-old daughter, Agam, as well as her two boys, again, 8 and 11 years old, are still considered missing. They are either kidnapped or their bodies were thrown out somewhere in the Gaza. We don't really know, which is... Uh, really, really, not only sad, but just so tragic. Now, former prime minister of Israel named Bennett, um, when he saw this and he saw many other visuals, he said, don't call them a terror organization. These people are acting with Nazi ideology. By the way, he's not the only one that said it. Many said it after him as well. And I think that w- that's what we need to comprehend. We really need to understand this. We're dealing with a type of Nazi ideology which the Hamas has written in its own charter. In the Declaration of Establishment, the Hamas has a charter. You can look it up. You can read it. It's very easy to read it. It says very clearly that the state of Israel must be wiped off the face of the earth. It's not just rhetoric. It's their goal. It's their dream. Again, you can see for yourself a simple Google of the Hamas charter. You can see it very clearly. It's overtly anti-Semitic. It's not just anti-Israel. It's also very much anti-West. It's a radical Islamic thinking that doesn't really represent Islam, but rather a perverted interpretation of Islam. And you know what? Let me quote from their charter again to understand the depth of this ideology. So first of all, as I quote, I'll say this. They call for an uncompromising jihad, which must be waged against Israel And any agreement recognizing its right to exist must be totally opposed. And they say, Jihad is the personal duty of every Muslim. In Article 28 of that charter, it basically conducts an idea of conspiracy charges against Israel. And not only against Israel, but against the whole Jewish people. It says that Israel, Judaism, and the Jews. It claims that Zionist organizations aim to destroy society, world society through moral corruption, eliminating Islam. They think that the Jews want to eliminate Islam and are responsible for, ready, drug trafficking and alcoholism. The Hamas Charter was already written in the 1980s, in the late end of the 1980s. But then they issued a new charter in 2017 because they realized how much pressure is put on them to weed out the, the, the anti-Semitism. Um, and what's interesting is they weeded out some of the anti-Semitism But their speakers, on a daily basis, still spew anti-Semitic statements in the years since and until this very day. They say, for instance, that the Jews spread, you ready, AIDS in the world. They say that um, a couple years ago, they said that the Jews are responsible for COVID in the entire world. They claim that the Jews come from monkeys disguised as humans. Um, According to their charter, the Jewish people have only negative traits and are presented as planning to take over the world. The charter uses myths taken from these classic European uh, anti-Semitism and Islamic-based anti-Semitism. And again, I want to stress, it's not Islam; it's a perverted interpretation of Islam. Now, I, I want you—I want—I want to with you to comprehend what ancient anti-Semitism is and what modern anti-Semitism is, and they're two different things. Ancient anti-Semitism always said, and it was a Christian anti-Semitism. It said. You, the Jews, killed christ i 'm saying this very bluntly. It did say that all the time as a matter of fact. Pope John Paul, in the year two thousand, came to Israel and wrote a note which he placed in the wall. The tradition of placing notes in the note uh, sorry, placing notes in the wall, which basically is either a request from God or a message to God and truly really about yourself and what you have to say and Pope John Paul, in the year two thousand wrote very clearly that the church, the Catholic church, apologizes for having blamed the Jews for the killing of Christ. And what's interesting is, is ancient anti-Semitism was such that, imagine, let's use the Crusaders, those Christian soldiers that went through Europe on the way to the Holy Land. They sometimes, a lot of times, would put a sword up to the neck of a Jew and say, look, you have two choices. You either adopt Jesus now and follow Jesus from now on, or I cut your throat. Now, what's interesting is—is is this is horrific, horrific anti-Semitism, and yet, they gave you a way out. They said you killed Christ; you're responsible for the, you know, for the bad in the world and the evil in the world, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. They even said Jews had horns on their heads and such other ridiculous statements. But you can be like me as long as you adopt Jesus. Modern anti-Semitism, Nazi anti-Semitism, basically says the following: If one of your grandparents was Jewish, which means. One quarter Jewish—that's it. You could be a Catholic priest, you could be a Buddhist monk, but if one of your grandparents is Jewish, your blood is contaminated. You are different. You cannot, you cannot be like me. And the Nazis, of course, said the solution to the Jewish issue, which they call the Jewish issue and the Jewish problem, is basically the death of the Jews, as we know, six million of them. What's fascinating is is that the Hamas uses the same anti-Semitism. It's not just about Israel; it's about the Jews. Now, I say this with a heavy heart, but anti-Semitism is rampant in the Arab Middle East. Rampant. As a matter of fact, and I want you to say, I don't believe you, I'm going to research this myself. Please do. The president of the Palestinians does not belong to Hamas. As a matter of fact, Hamas is his enemy. His name is Mahmoud Abbas, otherwise known as Abu Mazen. If you look up what he wrote his PhD on, which by the way happened to have been in the Soviet Union during the Cold War. His PhD is a Holocaust denial PhD. He goes as far as to claim that the Zionist movement, which is the idea of the Jews returning to their homeland, and the Nazis got together to make up something called the Holocaust, right? In order for the Jews to receive a homeland. um, And the Nazis would then get rid of the Jews from Europe and send them over to that homeland. And of course, what was that homeland? He claims, of course, it's, it's his homeland. So, you know, you don't have to go too far if the president of the Palestinians has a... PhD on Holocaust denial. Understand how inherent this is in the Palestinian Arab society. Incidentally, 21% of Israel is Arab. 21% of Israel are Arab citizens. And you hear very, very little Holocaust denial in those 21% because they live with us. They live with the Jews and they see what the Jews are. Now, back to the Hamas Charter. In Article 22, it states very clearly, and I quote, The enemies have been scheming for a long time and have accumulated huge and influential material wealth. With their money, they took control of the world's media. With their money, they steered revolution in various parts of the globe. They stood behind the French Revolution, the Communist Revolution, and most of the revolutions we hear about. Again, this is the Hamas Charter. And again, I keep quoting, with their money, they formed secret organizations such as Freemasons, Rotary Clubs, and the Lions, which are spreading around the world in order to destroy societies and carry out Zionist interests. They say the following. They stood behind World War I and formed the League of Nations through which they could rule the world. They were behind World War II. Once again, the Jews, they claim Hamas, was behind World War II, through which they made huge financial gains, the Hamas continues to say in their charter. Again, Article 22. There is no war going on anywhere without them having their finger in it. Again, anti-Semitism, modern anti-Semitism. Folks, understand something. The photographs that you saw of babies that are dead and, and, and pregnant women and elderly and young men and older men, etc. These are photographs that if the Hamas had their way, they would kill us all. The, this horrific anti-Semitism isn't just in the Hamas charter. Once again, it's rampant in Palestinian and an Arab society. It is an epidemic in their society and among much of the Arab Middle East. When you see these pro-Hamas demonstrations going on in England, in America, in Germany, and elsewhere in the world, this is part of that epidemic, which is very much an anti-Semitic epidemic. It's not new, um, but it is new in terms of the modern anti-Semitism that they're, once again, that they're actually spewing. All right? Now, you know, um, I've, as I said, guided tours for years now in Israel. And one of the places that we visit all the time, unfortunately, is called Yad Vashem. Yad Vashem is the name of the Holocaust Memorial Museum in Jerusalem. It's the main memorial for the Holocaust. And again, it's in Jerusalem. Um, In one of the rooms, there's footage of American soldiers that for the first time in their lives, they see the Nazi horrors. Now, understand, these American soldiers fought World War II. It's the end of the war. This footage is towards the end of the war, and they're seeing the aftermath of what the Nazis did to the Jews. And they're shocked. You should see their faces. Their faces are totally shocked, even though they've just been through World War II and saw their friends get killed and injured and have seen terrible, terrible battles. They look at them and they're shocked. They see naked bodies, thousands of them, that were shot through the head that were buried in mass graves, and so on. Their shock, their confusion, their trauma, is, is, is it's almost indescribable. I saw the same exact faces on Israeli soldiers and police and rescue team that for the first time saw the bodies of the young and the old and the men and the women and the children and the babies who, again, I stress, where heads were cut off. And I say again, a baby's he- head held up by a monster, a Hamas monster, who has a grin on his face. It's just absolutely deplorable. It's disgusting. We're dealing with modern-day Nazis. This has to be understood. And again, it's enough to read their charter. It's enough to see the the photographs. It is absolutely devastating. And here's one thing I assure you. We Israelis are now in total 100% consensus. We will not rest until they are all dead, those monsters, of course, every last one of them. Thus far, we've counted 1,300 dead. 85% of them, or 1,020 people, were innocent, unarmed civilians. As an anecdote, which I will speak about in future episodes, I want to say that our government, the Israeli government, our intelligence apparatus, and even the Israeli defense forces, failed us. In the first hours, they disappointed us in the first hours of the attack. It was a colossal failure, the first hours of the attack. And again, I'll discuss this in a future episode. It is not time now. Although the failure, the Israelis, the people of Israel, are total lions. I have no other words for it. In the last few months, Israeli society was ripped apart by our challenge to, the, to our democracy, our leadership that wanted to um limit the checks and balances together with people who supported it and people who were very much against it. We were in a bad place. All that now has been put aside. We will argue in the future. Now, right now, we're at war and that's what's happening. Now, I want to tell you a couple stories of the heroes. And the first story I want to tell you is actually of an Arab Israeli, a Bedouin Arab Israeli from a remote village. His name was, is Yusuf Zidana. Yusuf Tidana is a bus driver in his profession. When he heard about the attack, he didn't think twice. He took his bus and drove directly to the area of the music festival where hundreds were killed. And although he came under fire, he didn't stop or turn around. He continued to the music festival, loaded 30 people on his bus, 30 of the participants from the music festival, all young adults, and drove them away to safety. When asked, when interviewed later by TV, He said, we are all Israelis and are all in this together. And again, this is an Arab-Israeli who is a Bedouin Muslim. Another hero is a man named Yair Golan. Yair Golan is a retired general, uh, major general. He's 62 years old. He wasn't aware of what was happening, of course, on Saturday morning until his sister called him and said, hey, something's going on. There's firing down in the south. Something serious is going on. She told him that a friend of hers says people in the South are being are injured. Some of them are, were shot dead. As soon as he heard this, he asked for the location of where this was happening. He saw that he was only six miles away from that location, jumped into his car without hesitation, grabbed the gun which he had in reserves, took a couple of the soldiers he, he, he saw along the way and drove to the area of where, of where the, the fighting was going on. As he's there he gets a phone call from a man named Nir Guntage who happens to be a journalist who says Yair he knew him personally my son Amir is uh is 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 has just called me and said dad they're shooting on us um and his son was was f- you could hear the fear in his voice the the the, the recording it's re- there's a recorded um phone conversation you can hear the f- fear in his voice and he says he was composed enough to say where his location was, and even sent his location. Nir, the father, immediately got to his car, of course, and drove to the location, but he was stopped by a police barricade that would not allow her or enable him to go any further. Knowing that Yir Golan had already gone past that because there was, the, the barricade was set up after Yer Golan, Major General Yir Golan, was already there. Knowing that, he called up and said, my son, my son has, is on the phone with me. He's hiding in the bushes. And Yir Golan simply said, send me his location, I'm going to bring him to you. And he, indeed he did. I'll give you another, uh, another quote from another father who Yair Golan, Major General Yair Golan, also saved. His name was Roni Gaon. And Roni Gaon, who, by the way, is a senior worker in the Herzliya municipality, wrote in a newspaper, the major newspaper of Israel, called Yadiota Chonot, and I want to quote from that. He says this, I want to tell you about an angel without metaphors and without unnecessary stories. This angel's name is Major General Yair Golan. This heroic man saved my son's life and the lives of two of his friends. They were at a music festival, and when the rockets started falling, they ran for cover along with everybody else. They found a hiding place in a bush near the Re'em Reservoir. I immediately went south. A police checkpoint stopped me at the Mishmar HaNegev intersection. I gave the army officers who were there the exact location of my son and his friends, but for hours, no one came to them, and all this time, I was, on the f- I was in phone contact with my son and his friends. The Hamas butchers were there looking for them. They hid for hours, hearing the gunfire right next to them. Then suddenly, out of nowhere, the angel arrives at the location of my son and his friends. He called out to my son, calling him by name, saying, Hello, it's Major General Yair Golan. Come to me, I will get you out of here. Next thing I knew, my son's on the cell phone saying to me, Dad... Yair Golan is here, and I just don't believe it. I was in shock. A storm of emotions hit me. I had never experienced these emotions before. And my son said to me, Dad, he'll bring us to you. And so it was. The angel came and rescued them. Just unbelievable. I have no words to thank you, Major General Golan. I salute you. I want to tell you more about Israeli society at this time of of war. Israeli society came together um, almost like never seen before. At the equipment base of the Reserve Brigade of the Paratroopers, an infantry unit, which is an elite infantry unit in Israel, where the recruited soldiers are sent first, motivation is at a peak. A young man named Mai interrupted his vacation in Thailand, got on an airplane, and basically came to Israel. He said, once this happened, you can't stay in a hotel there. There's also Nathaniel, who will serve in the war alongside of his six brothers. A huge line, thousands of cars parked on the side of the road on route number 40 in Israel near the Lipkin military camp is only one of the evidence of the number of reserve troops who were mobilized for the war and showed up. Now, usually when reserves are called up, they call up a certain amount of people. The reports are that of the 100% of people that were called up, guess how many showed up? 150%. In other words many, many people who were not called up showed up. They want to fight in this war and they want to rid Israel of its enemy. On Saturday morning, one of the lieutenant colonels, his name is Ami Sharet, basically says this. On Saturday morning, I'm jogging on the beach. He usually jogs on Saturday morning. At half past nine, I was already here, that is, in the base, and I was recruiting fighters. He's the logistics officer of this this unit. The mobilization process usually takes... Um, about 16 hours, but this time it was shorter. It actually amounted to about two and a half hours of the soldiers getting to the base and starting to get their equipment to go fight this war. Each soldier who arrives at the unit basically scans a barcode located at the entrance to the logistics complex, and they're told where they're going to go, what unit they're going to, um, and where they're going to be fighting. Back to Nathaniel. And remember, Nathaniel is the one that has six brothers who are fighting alongside with him, In the army, right now. His name is Nathaniel Ben Menachem. He's from a community called Kochava Shachar. Nathaniel interrupted a year-long trip to the United States with his wife. The two of them were supposed to land in Israel in a few weeks from now, but decided to return because of the situation in Israel. Nathaniel says that in between the fighting, he will speak to six of his brothers that were recruited back into the army as the war goes on. And he basically says that there's one of the brothers is in the regular ranks. That means in the regular military mandatory service, which usually lasts between two and eight months to two years and eight months to three years. And all the rest of them are basically reserves. Um, Nathaniel simply puts it, I think about my parents, the fact that six of their kids are at war, but this is the time where we have to go out and fight because we are fighting for our existence, Nathaniel says. Remember Mai that returned from Thailand? He says this. It's a radical change. One minute you're sunbathing on a paradise island beach, and the next you're on an airplane on the way to fight for your people. Once this happened, he says, you can't stay there in a hotel. I need to join my friends, my army buddies in the south, and again fight for Israel. He says he goes on and says this, Hamas doesn't deter us, and it doesn't matter which political side you're on in Israel. We are going to defeat the enemy. When you see the horror pictures of what happened on Saturday, he says, it gives you motivation. It is painful and very difficult to see. We are here from all walks of life, coming together to win. Both Nathaniel and Mai are reserve soldiers. And here, let me just explain quickly, and again, in another episode, we'll be more detailed about it. But look, Israelis at the age of 18 have a mandatory service, um, and they enlist in the, in the military women and men some serve for 2 years some serve for 2 years and 6 months some for 2 years and 8 months and some for 3 years depending on the position and depending on the job that you that you do in the army that's the regular service the regular service job or the regular army's job is to hold off an intruder for long enough until the reserves are drafted who are the reserves well the reserves are those that have finished their mandatory army service usually at the age of 21 or 22 sometimes and they are reserve soldiers until around the age of 42 if they're in combat, if they're in a combat unit, that is. And these are the reserves. Understand, the bulk of the Israeli military is not the regular army. The bulk of the Israeli military is actually are actually the reserves. As far as we know, as of now, 350,000 reserve soldiers were drafted into the army for this specific war. Of course, most of them are logistics and so on, but there are many, many combat units that are on the border Ready to do their job. Now it's really interesting because we used to have uh, this song in Israel uh, in the '60s mainly. That the song was all about how the world is always all against us. Remember, this is only 20 years or so after the Holocaust. The world's always against us, and the song went on to say, "But no worries, we shall prevail." Now this is interesting because for the really for the first time in Israeli history, um. Israelis look at each other and say, wow, we have an ally that is fully behind us. And that is the United States and its president, President Joe Biden. On the highway in Tel Aviv, the main highway called the Island Highway, there are digital billboards in which you see a large picture of President Biden. And all it says is, thank you, Mr. President. Actually, there's another one next to it with, again, a picture of... Uh, of, of President Biden, and beneath it says "Don't" with an exclamation mark, which was the, which was the word he used to deter Iran and its proxy to Hezbollah, also be discussed in the next episode. You may know you may realize that America has sent not one aircraft carrier to the Middle East to the Mediterranean Sea next to the Israeli border, but two, and again to deter the enemies of Israel um, from, uh, from attacking Israel. Now, I just want to tell you a quick historical story, since I love history, and uh, that's what I mainly studied at university. Um, You know, in 1967, before what we call the Six-Day War, there was a real question of what's going to happen, whether Israel will survive a big war with the Arab countries. Israeli emissaries, mainly the foreign minister of Israel at the time was Abba Evan, was sent to the United States and spoke to Lyndon B. Johnson, LBJ, asking for an American warship to come into the Red Sea and deter the Egyptians from starting a war with Israel. Well, LBJ, Lyndon Johnson, said no. Why did he say no? You can understand it. It wasn't in America's interest. One, he was in Vietnam at war. And two, um, he didn't want to escalate the situation. He was afraid that the the Soviets could send uh, ships as a result of that. And then he would have to send more ships and the whole thing could become a world war. LBJ also said um, at the time to Abba Evan, our foreign minister, Israel's foreign minister, that Israel, if attacked, can defeat the enemy on its own. And you know what? He was right. By the way, we're still on our own, and we can defeat the enemy on our own, no doubt about it. But President Biden does decide to send the two aircraft carriers, which stand by Israel and is a very strong message to the rest of the world. Now, in the next episodes, which I will air in a day or two, I'll share more stories I'll also give you context to understand other fronts like Hezbollah and Iran and Syria and even Russian involvement. Israel will send ground troops into Gaza and will take out the Hamas militarily and hopefully even politically. This is a fact that Israelis agree upon no matter what side of the political scale they are on. That will happen in the coming days, maybe sooner than we think, and I will be here to update you. This podcast, InsideIsrael.fm, or Inside Israel, by Itai Tenenbaum, needs your support. I need your support in order to continue this going. If you'd like to, you can email me at Itai, that's I-T-A-I, at inside Israel, all in one word, InsideIsrael.fm. If you like this podcast, please share with others. You can access this podcast at insideisrael.fm on the internet, on the web, on our website. You can access it on any one of the media players such as Amazon, Google, Spotify, Apple, and so on.